Welcome to the Vigor Life Podcast, a source of inspiration, lessons, stories, skill sets, mindsets, and strategies to invigorate and expand all areas of your life. Let's go. What's going on? Coach Luca back here with the Vigor Life Podcast. We have pumped up the frequency, um, and I think that is a, is, is a great thing. Um, definitely trying to get more of uh, my thoughts and lessons and insights out. So, uh, with that said, here's what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about I would say becoming better at conversation, communication, essentially reclaiming conversation. Um, it's actually one of the, there's a number of books. There's just, there's a lot of books out there, obviously, that that do really well with, communi- or should I say, either creating perspective or improving the skills of conversation. Um, reclaiming conversation is one of them. Crucial conversation is another one. Uh, you know, for fitness, like I said, I've talked about motivational interviewing before. Uh, there's many different ones, but... It, it's going to sound like in, t- in today's podcast, it's going to sound like I'm completely shitting on uh, things like social media, text, so on and so forth. Um, and I'm not because I do think it, it's a great communication tool. Um, I think it's powerful to, like I said, it's like a megaphone towards the world to share your message. I mean, just like this, like a podcast, you know, we couldn't do stuff like this. Uh, I mean, even just, you know, five to 10 years ago, this would be impossible, right? And to have these platforms, these essentially media platforms where we're able to communicate through with, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of people, tens of thousands, millions, you know, whatever it may be. Um, So I think that's great. I think that's amazing. And technology can be used, you know, for, for amazing things and uh, and I like I said do my best to use it and communicate these things um, that, that I learn inside of my businesses brick and mortar inside of my life I would say now with that said um, you know what we're but we're losing a lot we're, we're losing a lot and it's once again you know technology is a tool um, and we can make these different choices uh, to behave differently and so what I'm going to go is like these, basically it's, it's 10 big ideas about reclaiming conversation. And and if there's kind of a quote or tagline to to this podcast today, it's, it, it, it is not a moment to reject technology, but to find ourselves um, and to acknowledge the unintended consequences of technologies to which we're vulnerable, um, to respect the resilience that has always been ours. And when I mean ours as humans, right? We have time to make the, the corrections. Now we can we can make changes and, you know, tech can still be there and be used for the things that it's powerful for, but we can still make these changes and to remember who we are, creatures of history, of deep psychology, of complex relationships, um, and of conversations, artless, risky, and face-to-face. And that's the, the, the thing I'm going to keep bringing back is this whole uh, face-to-face conversation. Um, and reality is like we've sacrificed conversation for, for mere connection at work, at home, uh, in love, you know, in businesses, um, politics, we find ways around conversation. And we're tempted by the possibilities of text, email, um, you know, every quick kind of tech thing that we have in front of us, uh, in which we don't have to reveal ourselves. And I think that's one of the, the, the key things that we want to address. Uh, and we got to turn back to solitude and self-reflection. And I've talk, talked a lot about self-reflection. I'm going to talk about a whole bunch about solitude today and what it really means. Um, and, you know, there's, there's this afraid of being alone kind of part we got to address. We rely on other people to give us a sense of ourselves and our capacity for empathy and relationships suffer because of it, right? So without conversation, there can be no genuine connection. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. So if without conversation, there can be no genuine connection. 
So if there's no syntax, no literacy, uh, no interpersonal collaboration, there is no humanity. With that said, um, you know, this is, I think this is a very important conversation. So while I, I like to kind of have some, I would say, show some podcasts where I go into this teaching mode somewhat from, from things that I've learned and, and, and going through my notes, um, I, I do think this one is, is very important. And, and as I'm going through this, you know, I've reflected myself on which parts of my life, and I'm going to share some of that throughout this, this, this episode, um, you know, where I fell off on these things because I, I certainly find uh, so much, I would say, pleasure in kind of the, the social atmosphere. I think I've, I've said this before that, you know, I'm a brick and mortar business owner because, and, and while I have other businesses that are online, I, I love brick and mortar because I love communities. I love uh, social interaction. I love what that social interaction, that connection um, and communication communities can achieve. Uh, and I, I do feel that the, I would say, the, that you get the most out of it and, and how we're wired is to, to be face to face. And, um, and, I, and I would encourage you and have you consider, you know, kind of moving in this direction where you do more of that. Now, with, with these 10 big ideas, um, you know, hopefully I, I, sh- I give you some um, science and data about behind it uh, and some insights on how you can improve your connection and conversation uh, in, in, your, in every area of your life, right? And we're going we're gonna to cover this in like the seven chairs theory. And so the big idea, number one, is that conversation is human, right? And that there, there's the skills of conversation. And this is important because we talk about, you know, deliberate practice and building skill sets. And just remember the conversation is how people develop and practice empathy. You know, we've talked so much about empathy, but hey, conversation is how people develop it and practice it. So talking with someone face to face, you not only hear their words, but you also observe their body language witness their thought process and perceive the, um, like the emotional undercurrents of what they're saying. Um, I've talked a lot about, you know, uh, and I've, I've read so many books about body language because I really wanted to get better at, um, you know, hearing what a person is saying, not just through their words, but through the way that um, their body's communicating. And I, I think that's very, very powerful if you're in any type of service business, uh, but just in general, in any type of relationship. So just know attentive conversation requires you to both listen and be listened to. It shows that another person is investing their time and energy in being present with you, and it gives you the gift of being heard. And how you know what's more powerful than that? And once again, like we've communicated about that. So now, when it when it comes to kids, remember the conversation allows children to develop emotional stability and social skills. It's how young people learn that they're worthy of others' time and attention. In-person conversation teaches skills of thinking, processing. Not just what is said, but through witnessing the thought process of others. This is called thought modeling. So if you've ever looked it up, I mean, you can wiki it and Google it and and see what it is. But thought modeling is one of the most important skills that students gain from teachers, parents, and mentors. Because facts can be read and memorized, but to learn the skill of complex thought, one must be around it. And that's where the whole big difference, you know, that's why I'm such a big fan of obviously being around people and masterminds and mentoring. and um, Because you get this thought modeling, right? Understanding how somebody thinks and then being able, able to dig deeper by asking them questions. You know, as I always get excited, you know, whether it was uh, a couple of years ago going to Necker Island, hanging out with Richard Branson, uh, going to New York and, and spending some time with Gary Vee, um, you know, being around some of my great friends and mentors, um, whether it's one-on-one or in groups, like that's, th- that's what's happening there is that thought modeling. And that's what I love. And that's very, very important for children, but it's also important for adults, right? So the humans are imperfect, right? And therefore, conversation seems risky and compared to more edible communication like text. So think about this, right? 
it is, it is. Like anytime you have, especially we talk about tough conversations, like that stuff, people want to avoid it because it is, it's risky, right? It's gritty. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like what Stephen Pressville calls it. Like the work is like, like birth. It's beautiful, but it's, but it's, but it's, but it's ugly, right? So, and, and I think that why we prefer, or should I say most people prefer now to, you know, do things like text and, uh, uh, whether it's FaceTime, well, I would say like more so things like social media texting or just texting all in general is because it's edited, edited communication and it's performative, right? The emphasis on being perfect rather than present. So this pushes deep connection toward just superficial. And because of this, you know, bonding and emotional well-being, empathy, like all of those suffer, right? To form a deep connection, you must feel accepted for who you are, not who you wish to be. And like when you start doing like a lot of the text stuff, right? It's all, hmm, what should I say? How should I say and that, that has its place, but we're losing this deep connection, right? And so the whole three chairs analogy. So, uh, you know, think about it this to, to, to illustrate how conversation impacts every aspect of human life, um, Turkle turns to, so if you've, you've ever read of uh, Henry David Thoreau, right? The American essayist, poet, and philosopher, and his uh, cottage retreat on Walden Pond. Uh, he had three chairs. This is, this is a pretty cool analogy in the thought process of it, right? One was for solitude, two for friendship, and three for society. And, um, and he uses this metaphor, the three, three chairs, to describe the interconnected areas of our life, right? One chair represents conversation with the self, which are really important. We're gonna to touch on that in a little bit, which creates a secure identity that allows you to listen and to empathize with others, right? This skill then helps you form intimate connections, two chairs, right? So now we got the two chairs and also build connected communities. So I'm gonna kind of run this back, right? right? One chair is the conversation with self, but it, that's the stuff that allows you to empathize with others and then form the intimate connections, which is two chairs and build connected communities, which is three chairs, right? So the sense of belonging and recognition that you loved ones and community provide allow you to feel grounded in yourself, right? And that's what we call the, you know, the one chair, two chair, and three chair conversations. And they build on and reinforce uh, on a virtuous circle of conversation. So know that face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we can do. And even, even just now, you know, as I'm saying this, like, you know, how much face-to-face -face conversation do you have? And although, you know, I may be speaking to a lot of coaches, I mean, shit, like, that's what we do, and business owners, I mean, but just in general. And I'm always going to give you some type of, you know, question, um, and, and I think this is where the value comes in for you, right? When it, Do you take some of this and actually apply it to your life? Do you ask yourself these hard questions? So think back to the last time you had a deep conversation with a friend or a loved one, right? What behaviors in yourself and the person you were with allowed this kind of sharing? Like, how does this conversation make you feel? And um, so I'm, I'm going to give you an example, okay? Uh, last week, uh, I spoke with a friend who's having difficult, difficulties with, with her relationship, right? So, and when she called, I could tell from the sound of, like, how she was talking and speaking that she was upset. So... I offered to like just meet up, um, meet up for lunch, go chat, um, go for a walk. And so be, like being with me allowed her to tell me what happened, to vent, to let it all out, to, to get emotional, right? So, uh, I mean, I, and it, the reality is like, look, I had no solutions. Um, it, it wasn't like this, like, what should I do? Here's my advice. I'm, I'm being a coach or a mentor. No, it's just, I just felt glad to be able to share that space and hear what was going on. Uh, you know, give her a hug, let her, let her cry. And after about a good hour, you know, it's like she was visibly calmer. 
And after I, I first seen her, which was, I could tell the tension was there. I could tell there was something inside. And I just felt a deep appreciation for our friendship. Now, you know, now this is what's important. Now take this same scenario and imagine how the conversation would have gone if it happened over email or text, right? Would, have, would it have been as deep or fulfilling? Would uh, it have happened, like would have, this, would have things happened the same way? So imagine this, right? So it, I'm, if I'm driving, friend calls, you know, uh, I could have Siri send a text or maybe I'm just, you know, uh, driving dangerously and respond something like, oh, no, you know, like capital letters. Uh, I'm so sorry. You know, uh, love you, L-U-V-U, uh, you know, sad frowning face right now, but I'll text you later. Right. Uh, and, you know, she might have responded like, yeah, I get it. OK. You know, ang angry emoticon, like, you know, what I mean, going to pr bed, probably love you, right? whatever. Right. Think about those two different parameters, like completely different world. Now, of course, do you always have an opportunity to go, you know, meet with somebody? Um, no, right? So, of course, in, in, a, in a perfect world, but we don't always have it. But there's so many opportunities, so many times that you can do this, and this is how we connect, right? So, there, there's a seven-minute rule, and it basically what it says is that most face-to-face -face conversations take at least seven minutes to kind of move or blossom or whatever word you want to use here from awkwardness into real engagement. You might have, you know, you might have noticed that in, in, a, in a number of situations where when you were conversating, right? So the exercise here is pick someone you would like to feel closer to and find a time this week to just start a conversation and with them in person and make sure you stay focused on engaging for them, with them for at least seven minutes, um, even if there's like awkwardness uh, behind that, okay? Like I challenge you to do that. Now, this may be, like I said, look, this may be a friend. This might be uh, a member. For anybody that's a business owner, I, I actually do like really encourage you to, to do a lot more lunches, coffees, conversations with people uh, for longer periods of time to discover more about where they're at, how they are, and just, and just do this face-to-face because -face, it changes so much. Um, and that moves us to like idea number two, which is flight from conversation. Uh, and, and this is kind of this this two-sided thing between relationship, relationship versus connection, right? So if you think about this, technology has rapidly changed cultural norms, right? So our smartphones are, are I mean, shit, like it's right there by me, but they're really, really far from, from reach. And we connect through text, email, video chat, social platforms. And we expect responses nearly instantly now, right? Uh, and what it does is it, it seems to fulfill three different things. Um, to always be heard, like right we always we, we all want to be heard um till we control where we focus our attention and to never be alone this all amounts to greater connectedness right <laughs> absolutely not and you know this is a great this is a crazy story when i was in africa and in namibia um i was uh we were out in this uh, akonjima uh, lodge and there was different parts to it but the lady that owned the lodge and it was one of my most amazing experiences in my life but was telling me that like a lot of people were coming, um, you know, where, where they were coming out, there was these mini lodges and people would stay in them by themselves and there was like nothing else around. And they felt so uncomfortable that they would all pack up into like the same little t uh, tent slash hut, right? Because, and it was because of that, it was because like they didn't want to be alone, right? Because being alone is so difficult for a lot of people. Um, so, 
when I said, hey, does this amount to greater connectedness? No, wrong. Social, co- like social contacts may be more numerous, but the connections aren't deep. The feeling of constant connection, it, you know, it erodes social bonds a lot of times, right? Human relationships are rich, messy, and demanding. When we clean up with technology, we move from conversation to efficiencies of more connection. And I think that we forget the difference, right? So think about that. Conversation and connection, two different things. So we use technology consciously and unconsciously to just to escape conversation, right? Because it's all, it's, it's, yeah, sure, it's connection, but it's not conversation. So people increasingly choose to text over talk, you know, check messages during a conversation, make eye contact with phones more than people, use, use the web for conversational stimulation, share photos, memes, instead of using words, and turn the phones uh, during moments of boredom and aimlessly browse online instead of daydream. Like the list goes on to like how we do this, okay? And, and you know, you could call it addiction, you could call it whatever, but you know, it's, it's kind of like distracted and managed. So there's two major ways that tech basically erodes our conversation. And the first is distraction. We've talked about this before. Um, you know, because now it's like normal to have your phone with you like pretty much all the time. Dinners, dates, meetings, social gatherings, uh, occasions that alternate between speaking with each other and checking your phone, right? Which, and, you know, and, and I'll say this too, like I still catch myself doing that and and I, I'm like, oh, fuck, I gotta stop. I gotta stop doing that and gotten better at it. Uh, or should I say gotten better just putting the phone away when I really wanna have a conversation? Um, but, you know, sh- studies show uh, that, like, one, as soon as you have, like, moments of nothingness, like, uh, I remember me and Jay one time, we're driving in a car and, like, didn't say a word for, like, you know, 25 minutes and we're just, you know, listening to music. And it was like, man, that's cool. Like, that's okay. Right, because people will try to fill space. And so the same thing is like when there's a moment, you know, people sometimes will like check their text, email, social media, you know, send something out. And studies show the presence of a smartphone, even when silence changes what people talk about. Think about that. It's crazy. The subject matter is more likely to stay on the surface. Like just when you have a phone with you, the subject matter is going to stay more on the surface. So smartphones have become a barrier to deep conversation, just them being around. The other thing is that technology seduces with the ability to manage hard conversations. That, that's the second part of kind of the erosion, right? Text, email, chat allow you to edit everything you're saying until you're confident that you're saying the right thing. Isn't that crazy, right? People have started to choose to fight and apologize via text, like flirt online rather than in person, exchange ideas through emails instead of meetings. Um, you know, what other else uh, scenarios have, have in common is where the conscious choice moves away from real-time in-person conversation in favor of something that's more manageable communication, right? Because manageable is like, ah, shit, like, now let me delete this. Um, let me go back and say this. Actually, let me look up. Now, th- th- sometimes that's, that's fine, right? I don't know if I'm presenting something or communicating in an email in some way. Sure, but that's, but that's why the face-to-face conversation is so important. So, what these decisions overlook is the spontaneity, the messiness, the emotions and mistakes. And that's how creative solutions and, and unexpected ideas come about. And that's where the best shit happens. So text and email don't provide opportunity to read another person's body language, language or witness their experience. Like the whole managed communication leaves it pretty much like it leaves little room for like the unexpected result. Right. I, I would just say like where the magic happens. Right. And, and so that's where managing is just not a great thing. So we haven't stopped talking, but we opt out 
often unconsciously of the kind of the conversations that require full attention. And I feel like that's where the issue comes in. So here's a question for you. Are there any questions or activities when you choose to not have your phone? Like have your phone with you? Why or why not? What do you gain from leaving your phone out of the equation? Um, you know, there's certainly a, a lot of moments where I do that. Uh, and I, I'm actually working to create more moments where I have to leave the phone or, you know, there is no signal or there is no availability of it. Like, for instance, paddleboarding, which has been this uh, new, I would say, my new ritual that I'm picking up. Uh, and a couple of things, like if I take the phone with me on paddleboarding, I have to have, to have the, bull, uh, the waterproof case. You know, if I'm taking out the waterproof case, there's a big chance it's going to drop into the water. So, hey, that's my two to two and a half hours where I get that time for me. And it's like, I, I don't have the phone. Per, that, that's just an example. But that's, but, you know, uh, this is the, your application to life question is like, how do you commit to conversation? Um, and especially when you're around people. And I, you know, answer that question. Are there any conversational activities where you choose to not have the phone? Why or why not do you do that? And what do you gain from leaving it? So think about the practice of avoiding hard conversation by substituting it with text or email. In what circumstances are you usually guilty of this? And what motivates your choice? I, I'd have you consider answering these questions. And once again, like if you even took just one of these and answered them and create, it would create awareness for you to be able to change something. And that's powerful. And that's really my goal for, well, for myself at, as well as for you. Because once again, you know, I'm, I'm here <laughs> really digging into my own life uh, while sharing it with you and, and kind of, you know, like, sure, I've, I've done a lot of these things, but there's always more that I can do. And, it, and also creating awareness around, hey, I got so much more to work on as well. So here's, here's my exercise for you. Right? Pick, pick an activity uh, or time, preferably today, because you're listening to this and I like for you to implement the things that you learn as fast as possible. When you usually have your phone. So instead, leave your phone silent in another room. Take 15 minutes still without your phone to reflect on how its absence changed your experience during that time. So just list a few more activities or times that might benefit you from the absence of technology. And this is kind of like building this habit, like leave a phone for 15 minutes. You know, um, one of the things too that I've, I've started doing is I used to, I still do, I still do. I, um, you know, walk with my phone cause I listen to a podcast when I walk, walk in Kulon Park. Um, but now I've started taking these 20 to 25 minute walks where I leave the phone at home. And it is, it is a different experience. It is a, it is a completely different experience. Why? Because even stuff like, you know, I'm naturally like, oh, it's a beautiful day. Let me pull out my phone and IG story this, right? Because part of it is like, hey, you know, uh, understanding the, the why, why story is there and connecting with the world. And, you know, um, I would say some of it is for marketing and, and obviously reaching out and showing this, that, and the other. So, you know, with that said, like, it's very, very different because I have the phone. Guess what? I'm listening to the podcast. I might text somebody. I might do this and that. So I'm not going to be completely engaged in nature. This leads us to, to big idea number three, which is we talked about the chair. So the one chair is solitude. And man, this, this one is powerful. I think this is kind of where you could probably take the most out of this. And, and thinking about this idea of turning inward. Okay, so solitude is how you get to know yourself and to learn to trust your imagination. And your capacity for solitude is an important developmental marker related to your ability to perform other activities that require long-term attention. So think about like why at this point in time in our lives, it's hard to get shit done, right? It's hard to get shit done because we're popping from one thing to another. But this is a big part of it. And, you know, 
Picasso said, without great solitude, no serious work is possible. But then what is solitude? Like solitude is when you're doing, when what you're doing brings you closer to yourself, right? It's, it's the beginning of what some would call the virtuous cycle. So the sense of self you establish during solitude allows for empathy, which, you know, is massively important we talked about because when you're grounded in yourself, you can also imagine yourself in someone else's shoes, and, you know, I always, even, even in, uh, when I talk to, uh, I would say my business coaching clients, I'm always like, Hey, you know, to understand what, uh, you know, what John Doe buys, you got to see what, John, uh, what you got to you got to be in John Doe's shoes to see what he buys. Right. And so this is, this is how you develop at it. It starts with solitude. Okay. So in, in solitude is, is linked to attachment. Which, which, when I say it out loud, it kind of goes, you know, you might be going like, huh, what? But think about this. In children, the, the capacity for solitude develops in the presence of an attentive but silent adult. So it, there has to be, I mean, has to be. There, there's, there's usually someone there that they're attentive, but they're silent. And the, what psychology books will call this is um, the, uh, the attentive other. I got so much stuff in my head, damn it. I got to pull it out. Um, so... So the thing is, solitude is not the same as loneliness, okay? Two very different things. Loneliness is a lack of connection, while solitude is time spent with yourself in the context of healthy intimacy with others. Solitude, like all great things, though, takes time. And, you know, that's what I was talking about earlier. Do you have people that you can be around and just sit there and enjoy each other's company without feeling the need to fill that space? Um... And what's happening now is that time has become a resource to exploit, right? Making it hard to value experiences that don't create measurable accomplishment, whether it's like, hey, you know, in this, in this hour, I got X, Y, Z done. I, you know, put up three posts. I did blah, 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 you know, whatever it may be. Um, and basically, people turn to technology in moments of stillness, right? Social media uh, gets us to constantly document our life, and, and this leads to an ability to, to, to get in touch with your feelings without sharing them with others. That, that's, man, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing, right? Online, you examine experiences external to you, but you never have a deep experience of being in your own company. And that's what solitude is. So, you know, think about social media browsing because it, it, it makes you um, do something called the machine zone, right? So it, it's like, it, it's equivalent to, equivalent it, like think of an experience of becoming kind of uh attached to performing a task that's not mindless or outside of your abilities so it's it's it's, it's not it's not flow right in the machine zone there's no positive results right so like flow you're engrossed in something here there's just no positive results right when you're on social media, you don't leave, but you're not sure if you're making a conscious decision to stay. So, you know, and you literally could at the end say, hey, listen, what did I do here? Now, sure, there's points of time. Like, I know, like, I get on and, and I do, you know, make posts and um, put up content and so on and so forth. But, man, how much of that time are you really actually doing something, right? And is there a time where, like I said, you're just filling up the space? And... Understand that reclaiming conversation begins with rec reclaiming our capacity for solitude. Like that's step number one. That's why I said, hey, that's, that may be the most important thing that you can do. So when we reach for a phone uh, to 
like to push reverie away, we should get into the habit of asking why. Like, why are we doing that? Okay. So here's a question for you. Do you have routines to ground yourself, to get in touch with how you feel? And what are these activities and how often do you make time for them? For, for me, it certainly is, I would say, working outside in nature by myself. Um, obviously hiking, I absolutely love hiking. I'll go hiking by myself uh, uh, as well and, and just walks in a park and walking out in nature. I mean, that's definitely one of them. And you know, what are they for you? And then do you fall victim to the machine zone? When does this tend to happen? I certainly still do. I certainly still do. Uh, shit, I was just at Mercedes getting my car uh, serviced this morning. You know, was was doing a bunch of work. Kind of popped on the phone. Bam, machine zone there I was for like about 35 minutes. Uh, did some work on it, but honestly, most of it I just kind of fell in. So here's an exercise, right? Next time you go check your social media app, take a few minutes to write down how you feel. Then after closing the app, take another couple of minutes to write down how you feel. Has anything changed? And uh, the, the thing is, just that awareness, just that awareness, I think, will, will help you be, like see how you are like when you're on a phone in that machine zone when you're not, right? So choose a morning this week to put a post-it note on the screen of your phone with a question and just write why. Every time you go check your phone that day, especially if it's in a moment of stillness, answer the question following the format. I'm checking my phone right now because, you know, fill in the blank. And if you're not satisfied with your answer, then choose stillness. Just be. This is practice. Guys, this is practice. This is practice of stillness. Which leads us to big idea number four, which is another chair, which is self-reflection. In, uh, in the last episodes, I've talked a lot about self-reflection, but think about Think about this idea of grounded versus performative, right? Self-reflection is how you interrogate your own feelings, beliefs, hopes, fears, and motivations. And you have to be vulnerable and honest. So when you examine yourself in this way, you gain familiarity, comfort, and confidence in who you are and who you'd like to become. Um, you know, I've talked about journaling before, but journaling is like probably one of the most, I guess, traditional and uh, forms of self-reflection. Not just traditional, I think it's like one that stood the test of time more than anything else. And the psychoanalysis is built on the idea that asking where your emotional patterns come from and attaching a narrative to, you know, why you are the way that you are is a powerful tool for self-acceptance, which, which I agree. Um, I, I certainly don't agree with some of the things where people get too stuck in that and, and don't take action. Uh, so I think that's where sometimes you got to draw the line. But when you understand your own motivations and impulses, you have better control of how you choose to act on them. Right, because and in, in Victor Frankl talked about like the the space between the the, the feeling, the thought, uh, and the action. Right, there's a space there, and that space is a space that you can practice to create and then create choice. But you know, when you understand your motivation and impulses, you can you can better do that. So you can also to, uh, to begin to understand the reasons other people are the way they are and see their emotions as separate from your own. And I. I spoke about this like I've said quite a many episodes ago that like the when I started understanding myself better I was able to understand other people better right so when you post on social media you you may also be taking stock of your experiences and emotions but but in a different way though not not in the way that you think that you are social media is like it's public and encourages the portrayal portrayals of like the aspirational self right it's like you're the aspirational guy. So what ends up happening is that you tend to post what you know will get the most likes. And so then you edit that content that you follows might judge negatively, right? So 
And once again, like I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm creating awareness around this because therefore in this case, social media posting is not a true reflection. It's the performance of reflection. The benefits are not the same. In fact, using aspirational self as a tool for reflection can make you feel worse about who you really are. Just, just know that, that like when you, when that's what you rely on, especially all the time when you don't leave room for solitude and self-reflection, like you're going to have an issue and a lot of people actually get more depressed and more stressed out about it. So here's another idea about, you know, tracking versus understanding this. And, you know, think about this. Apps promise to track your sleep, mood, diet, you know, uh, or even write, when you write an online journal, like they'll help you improve yourself. And, and so you got to be you got to be somewhat suspicious of that because a data set with no understanding of the story behind it can be very misleading. So, you know, people are not simple. And I talked about the whole idea between um, uh, complex and and uh, I'm losing the word right now. Damn it. Um, I'm going to have to come back to this. <laughs> is I, w- I was talking about the art of coaching, but it's, uh, you know, humans are complex. Where complex means that like there's so many different factors that, 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 that can change. And you can't put it in a box and you can't put so many, you know, I, I would say rules towards it. So people aren't simple. And let's give a scenario. So if you're, for instance, you're having trouble sleeping, right? Like a psychoanalyst might ask, you know, what you think is is true to which you might answer you don't know. Then the analyst might ask you what you think about when you can't sleep. What do you do before you go to bed? Like when you when did the trouble with sleeping start it, right? So this uh, open-ended question like may help you start to see a bigger picture. But a tracking app is just going to tell you that you're averaging, you know, five hours of sleep a night and then your bedtime is erratic. You know, uh, you're waking up X, Y, Z times a night, but it's not going to help you understand the why. So... Tracking also pushes you to fix your behavior and, you know, to get the numbers right, right? I mean, that's literally, that's what you're doing, right? I'm getting five, I'm trying to get seven, right? But this corrective relationship to self, it may, like, it's trying to encourage you to make a change, but it doesn't encourage acceptance or deep understanding of why it's happening. So acting without understanding rarely solves a problem. So that's that's a, a profound thing to understand, right? The acting without understanding really solves the problem. Why? While taking action is important because action obviously gives you feedback, but we have to understand stuff. Otherwise, like I said, it, otherwise you'll create new problems. So without first understanding yourself, how can you expect to understand others? Tracking apps are only useful uh, because they begin a conversation. And that's why I don't think that they're a bad thing. I think having something to give you feedback and create awareness that opens up for conversation, good, right? And once again, we kind of find this whole, I didn't, I didn't want to have this conversation about like, man, get rid of all this stuff, like it's evil and it's bad, because that's, that's absolutely not the case. But it's, it, it's a conversation about coming back to conversation. So afraid of being alone, we struggle to pay attention to ourselves. If we can't find our own center, we lose confidence in what we have to offer others. Um, and that's the thing, like if, if you're not confident in yourself and can't pay attention to yourself, how are you going to, that's, that's when disconnect happens because then you don't, you're, you're not confident to go and share your thoughts, beliefs, knowledge with other people. Um, so here's a question. So look at the grounding activities from the last, uh, I would say the last idea that I share with you. What about these provide space for self-reflection? And ask yourself, how much time do you spend, like how much time do you allocate to them, right? How much time do you spend doing those things? And does it seem like that's enough? Is that enough for you?
Can you honestly say that's enough for you? If not, like, where could you fit in more? And uh, here's another one. Like, think of the last time you shared a troubling emotion on social media. What benefits or drawbacks occurred as a result? Now, think about if you had written it down in a journal and asked yourself why you felt this way. How would that have been different? You know, would those have been like two different, I would say, posts, meaning one's a journal for you, self-reflection, and then one's for social media, you know, trying to make a point. I mean, of course, uh, I I would say, of course, that would be different, (laughs) but I think that's the point and why, you know, journaling is important. And that's one of the exercises that I, that I want you to consider is starting a journal for like, but for your eyes only journal, use it about what, you know, about what makes you curious or confused, write in it at least five to 10 minutes a day, leave all your tech in another room while you do it too. Don't post about it on social media. This is for your own sense of self period. And then how easy is it for you to feel your feelings by yourself? It may be frustrating and it may be even boring at first. Um, it might feel uneventful with nobody to like your stuff, right? But give it time and, and, and think about that, right? Think about how, it, yo, I raised my hand here too, like in a sense, right? Especially on that, that last, I would say, sentence that I shared, which is that you might feel that it's uneventful with nobody to like it. So then you have to go inside and like really, really dig in, in, in and find out what's going on. This brings us to big idea number five, which is two chairs, families and children's. Now, of course, family matters. I may say family matters most, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big, I would say, factor in you know, family of, of um, origin and family of choice, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, but, but for starting from birth, you know, children of the digital age now are, are kind of dealing with a different conversational style than those of past generations. Why? Because phones and devices distract adults, babies are being given less attention, attention they get often includes less eye contact and and less emotional engagement. Um, So then, as children are in their formative stage of developing communication skills, now we had to pause for uh, the rent and train that comes through, which is very, very loud. I love it, I absolutely love it, but it does get loud and it's like we had to press the pause button on that one. Um, But I'm, I'm gonna go right back into where we're at. So. You know, because th- this is very important. Now, if you're if you're a parent, I, I mean, this you should certainly like listen and be aware of this because, you know, we talked about because of phones, we're giving children less attention, less eye contact, less emotional engagement. So, when children are in their formative stage of developing communication still, skills, they aren't being taught on how to listen actively with intent. Think about that. That's that's so powerful because smartphones now demand most of everyone's attention and can easily distract. So this constant distraction has made mentorship and like family family education very sparse, which in, you know in turn like kind of builds the limited ability to be empathetic, to empathize. Man, so it starts right from the get go, right? Like this is what you're. This is it's a learned trait from from the beginning. Uh, like fighting over text has become a common phenomenon, right? Even when feuding family members are in the same house, texting allows you to edit and re-edit whatever you say, which has encouraged you know, us to think that there are right and wrong things to say during arguments. So this implies that the preservation of the relationship is less important than the power, validity, or accuracy of the words being shared, which, which is not. And I can straight up say that like, I've seen this, like I will say, um, happening more and more often where I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody 
or have a, um, I, I would say a face-to-face conversation, an uncomfortable conversation, right? A crucial conversation, might I, might I add, which is a phenomenal book that everybody should read. Um, and I've seen avoidance of that, but then being communicated with all, through text, right? And I'll be like, well, no, let's meet up. And there's, you know, some, oh, I can't do it this time and that time, but I'll get the text. And there's this, this text communication. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of this happening, uh, whereas now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you know, I can share through text and edit and kind of think through what I'm going to say, but that's not helpful. So when it comes to families, uh, I really believe that device-free spaces are are a great strategy to, to help with this. So it sounds simple, but you know, smartphones have actually made speaking with another person a bit of an event. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh man, I just had this great conversation with a person. So in your home, encourage the creation of device-free spaces. You know, whether it's designating the kitchen, living room, bathroom, shit, even the car, and create a rule that no one uses their phones, tablets, or smartwatches while they're in these spaces. So pretty, I mean, you know, this is, this is not a small undertaking, I, I might add, but man, I would have you consider doing that and see how, or, you know, even do it for like 30 days and see what happens, right? Because this will like, well, first of all, almost certainly cause awkward silences and leave you all bored for like periods of time. Um, but these experiences are important though, right? So return to an ability to, to converse, to find enjoyment and value in time spent together and embrace the disconnection in a case of a fight understand that direct conversation will teach greater empathy like not only can you understand the emotional arena much better but the goal of sustaining the relationship will have a natural emphasis when you're in the room together big difference than just going like ah, i'm so pissed mom and i you know go upstairs and i text you um so Perhaps it's easier to have a fantasy that there'll be like another time, you know, to connect with your kids uh, than to do the work of making the kitchen dining room a sacred space for conversation. But I'd have you consider that the time is now. Uh, and while well, I always want to, like I said, you know, look, I, I don't have kids yet. I spend a lot of time uh, around a lot of the kids, you know, being in Uncle Luca mode. But I, I love to study this too because I know it's like once I have my own family, you know, these are the strategies that, that I want to employ. And, um, and studying like what does work and like where we're, you know, kind of almost from the outside looking in what can be done better. Uh, so, you know, here's, here's, like I said, maybe even like, even if you don't have kids, I think this is powerful, but designate one room or space in your home. that will be good for device free spot. What area will this be for your home? That's your homework, right? That's your homework. And, um, here's another activity. Okay. So step number one, is find a designated space, make it happen. You know, test it out, even if it's for seven days, 14 days, right? But then honesty can be a powerful medicine. So ask for feedback. Pitch three individuals close to you. If you got kids, make sure one of the three people you choose is your kid. Ask each of these people to tell you honestly when they feel that you pay attention to your phone instead of them. Don't try to explain your behavior, okay? Don't, don't, Don't try to explain it. Your job is just one thing, to listen, okay? Thank them for their feedback and write down what they told you. And again, don't try, try to explain it. Don't try to justify it. Don't even try to justify it to yourself, right? This is all about listening. And literally, like, write it down. Like, what did one person say? What did the second person say? What did the third person say, right? And, and the last thing is the next time you're upset with, shit, it could be anybody. But in this case, we're talking family. Like, family members suggest that you resolve the issue solely by talking it out in person. That's the rule, 
right? Commit to putting digital messaging off limits. Um, Garrett had this great thing where, where they, uh, he would do with his daughters where each person had two minutes to talk. In the two minutes, the other person could not talk. And another person had two minutes and you had to listen. Another person had two minutes, right? So it created this thing where, number one, you got to have a face-to-face conversation. So that's the exercise, period. But from there, like, how about when you have these two-minute conversations and, and you can't say, you can't jump into the word, right? That's the rule. Uh, and have you considered that would really, really help you out with that? Okay, big idea number six, two chairs, romance and friends, and here's where we come to like the fear of missing out, right? Communicating through digital messages allows us to edit ourselves. We mentioned that before. So we're no longer restricted to spoken words to communicate our thoughts and can insp- in- instead spend extra time perfecting a text to communicate basically the emotion, the attitude, the feelings, right? And at the same time, phones gives us access to knowledge of the world, including what's going on for various social circles, uh, any time of the day, uh, you know, what, what's coming up for parties, events, so on and so forth. So we, we come to believe that these advances essentially offer us more control over our decision interactions, but the reality of it is that they've actually moved us away from more authentic experiences. So rather than developing friendships and empathy like through complex, raw interactions with our friends, we're instead developed kind of like a sense you know, of these connections and nothing more, right? We, we have a sense of them, but we don't really have these deep, deep connections. And when it comes to like the romantic area, it's, it's even more subject to like the whims of the digital area uh, in, in friendship, right? You have such great control over who you meet, how, for what purposes, uh, that the access to, you know, let's just call it romance is much easier than it's ever been. I mean, shit, think about like everything that's out right now from Tinder to Bumble to, uh, you know, to just, I mean, just DM social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, um, with that said, the minutia of communicating in the context of romance has taken on much greater significance. So we count every moment a text goes un- unanswered, and we develop rules and frameworks about what certain perceived tones and periods of time past represent, right? Like, I mean, for real, think about this. You know, especially uh, if, if somebody has it turned on, like, hey, when you see that somebody read a text and they don't answer you, like, man, fucking you, you read, they saw the text. Why didn't they answer me? What does that mean? Like, like you know. Uh, I mean, th- this is what it's created, right? So, in in same thing as as with the family situation, we insist on fighting over text because it effectively shields ourselves from pain and kind of like editing the conversational identity here, you know. So, if we want a relationship at any level, we can be entirely cut off by ceasing digital communication. So, deliberate we, deliberate practice is something we've talked about a lot, right? So. So some young people are beginning to flip the paradigm of how they view their own self-worth. Rather than measuring by their friends' number of likes and interactions on social media, they judge themselves based on how much they can become invested in a true conversation. So by identifying how easy and common it is to become absorbed by digital or just, uh, forget, you know, digital conversation, but, but engaging, rather, the value of engaging in real, attentive, emotional conversation should be kind of like greater on account of its rarity, right? Think about this, like what should, what should we value? And when it comes to like romantic settings, it's become, it's, I mean, quintessential to learn who significant other is behind the screen. So the deliberate effort to make this connection despite the social media context 
makes the action even more powerful. So like in this day and age, we, uh, me and Jay always talk about this now, it's like in this day and age, how powerful it is to have these real conversations because they're more valuable. Because remember, what's, what's difficult is, uh, what's rare is, uh, what's difficult is rare and what's rare is valuable. Well, guess what? It's difficult to have a real conversation now. So they become more valuable in the space of connecting uh, and I would say romantic re- relationships, right? So most people are trying to use technology to make the relationship uh, untidy as all relationships are, more tidy, right? Their goal is to make conversations and romance more efficient and controlled. But I, I don't think that that's the way to go about it. I think that's why we also have more, more issues in that realm. Right. And and here's a question for you. Have you ever ended a relationship of any sort by simply halting digital communication? Has this ever happened? Has it happened to you? In either case, how did they, how did that make you feel? I mean, whether it was obviously another person, if it was you, would, would you have liked a different ending? Um, and how have your friendships or romantic interactions changed in the presence of smartphones? In what relation in what way has your relationships been enriched? In what ways have your connections been weakened? It's an important question, right? Um, I certainly know that I would, you know, because think about it back in the day, man. Like you would, I mean, you'd have to call the house, right? You'd call the house like, yo, is, you know, Joey at home? Is is Jenny at home? Okay, cool. Or then if nobody picked up, you'd come by the fucking house with the bike, right? You'd hang out. You'd have more of that. Whereas now, like, I mean, shit, you can, you can follow somebody, check where they're at. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming way crazier. So it certainly affected it. And I, and I do believe because so everything is at your fingertips, you can feel like you're connect, connecting. So you send the text, you send the messages, but you're not really conversing. And I think that, you know, that's actually like making us more disconnected. So the exercise for you here is scheduling a device-free date night uh, with your significant other or, or friends. That's fine, Right. If, and if this seems like just too difficult right off the bat, uh, and then, then at least have an activity within that night that's, that would be completely device-free. That's the challenge for you, right? That's the challenge for you. So notice at the end of every idea, we got some, some challenges or some, some homework for you to do. All right, big idea number seven, the th- uh, three chairs, education and work. Uh, so think about distance learning, right? So in, the way in which technology has changed the, cha- uh, the nature of the space is, in, in, is just insane. It is insane. I mean, and obviously, like when you stop and think about that, you can like right off the bat go like, yeah, that's, that's changed pretty much more than just about anything. So we've established how cheap and easy communication is now compared to the past. But this logistical change has been basically, you know, it, it's been forwarded to every major institution in the world, right? So work used to, to demand that you go in an office or specific site to, you know, to do your job. I mean, now that's just completely changed. And also education used to demand that you attend a class in a classroom or a lecture hall. And none of that is true anymore. And that creates both, well, one's benefits for sure, but also detriments, right? Because the classroom has seen plenty of like virtual interactions now from the popular online grad school programs to massive open online courses, which I, you know, I mean, I've been a big, I would say, proponent of courses. I love it. Like I'm going through Eric Cressy's course for the second time right now. I'm going through another copywriting course online. I'm going through uh, redoing Joel's Bioforce, right? Great. Courses are fantastic. Uh, You know, so because for many, this has increased access to education and its benefits, which is phenomenal. But 
there's a second part to this. The change has also altered the educational process without first confirming whether this is more or less effective for learning, though. So, in, in fact, early research suggests online learning is not as impactful as in-person learning. So, while I don't think it's, a, it's bad, it, but it's cutting down that in-person learning, which, which has the, the most benefits, which is why I'm such a big fan of going to programs and the you know because when people are like oh well, i could do this shit at home and of course why would i come out to the seminar luca because you get to connect to everybody else and you're doing you're learning by doing and you're in and interact and having these conversations and remember the first idea what i talked about was thought modeling that's why right so many professors are agreeing that the virtual cl uh, classroom deprives students of the ability to engage in academic discourse properly Right? I'm not saying that doesn't happen online, but so rather than asking questions in person, displaying a, occasional like vulnerability in doing so, students can edit themselves. Right? When you when you go online, you can edit yourselves. I mean, shit, you can delete your comments and change stuff. Right? And this can easily turn the classroom into a space of state safety ra rather than exploration, uh, and that's not what we want. And and the thing is, you're always on. Right? There's always there's also there's plenty of research that shows a serious difference between how people consume written information from a screen versus from a physical book. I'm very happy to hear that. You know why? Because I love physical books. And, and naturally, attentiveness can be reduced significantly when students are held accountable by the watchful eye of a professor. This is just fucking real stuff. Accountability. The office is also going through like an identity crisis of, of sorts uh, because of the, inf uh, the, I would say the influence of the, or should I say the tech influence, right? Many tasks, often entire positions, can now be executed from a computer. So what then is the need to have a physical location when you and your co-workers can meet? And there's so many benefits of that, right? It's not just like, oh, the work can be done somewhere else. So we have, a, we have now an opportunity to cut back on travel and environmental impacts, and the cost of real estate can be greatly reduced. All fine and dandy, right? I mean, sure, like some of these things are really good. Like with families and friends, though, having less face-to-face -face conversation interaction has been found to harm a whole bunch of aspects of the workforce. So productivity has been clearly linked to employee sociability in the workspace. And removing that opportunity for natural creation of community uh, in, in a workspace, just it complicates business relationships. It just does. And this is so studied now. So think about it. You may have had a job where you felt like always on call, right? And maybe that's your current work reality. Now, text messaging has altered how we think about work relationships. It's very easy to treat them more casually by sending out casual messages with requests. But in doing that, though, these relationships become like pretty much transactional, right? And, it, and it's, they're not really good and conducive to well-being. So once again, like th this, is, this is taken away from that depth in conversation. So studies are demonstrating that workers across different fields are more productive when they talk more, like really talk, one-on-one. -on -one. So it's not surprising that the positive effects of people brushing shoulders play out every level of the organization. One of the big reasons why I love to sit down with the team, one-on-one -on -one in groups, but like there's a lot of that skin-to-skin, face-to-face. So here's a question for you. Do you feel always on with your job because someone could email you or text you something urgent at any moment? And have you ever treated a coworker or somebody on your team the same way? Here's, here's a, a task for you when it comes to workplace. And then, like I said, if you're running a gym, if you're running any type of small business, work with your team, work with you know, uh, your boss, or like I said, if you're the, the, the leader, to design the workplace for productivity. Find ways to alter the space so that uh, people are attracted to work they engage with, with each other in person. 
Uh, and what are the first steps to get this off the ground? Now, even if you already have a workspace and people are working together, how can you improve on that? How can you get people like to get together? Right? Encourage an event, like whether it's a dinner outing where uh, you know devices are limited, and that shit can like work wonders to develop relationships. It can work wonders. Brunches, hikes, um, any type of, like I said, place where you can get together, you create space for culture to happen. And, um, and like a, but, but on top of that, like I said, limiting devices. This brings us to big idea number eight, reclaiming attention. So the myth of multitasking. I know you've heard it before, right? But time is a really scarce resource these days. So the idea that you could accomplish more with less uh, of it is, is pretty appealing, right? So multitasking promises you can do several tasks at once. And I'm like absolutely somebody that still needs to work on this shit, even though I've become better at, at it, right? Um, because you think that if you multitask, you create extra time. Like that's pretty much how it goes, right? But multitasking is lie. And multiple studies are, are, are showing that when we think we're multitasking, our brains are actually moving quickly from one thing to the next. And our performance like just degrades for each new task we add to the mix. So it gives us a high. It gives us like a neurochemical high. So we think we're doing better and better, but we're actually doing worse and worse, right? This is like the ultimate 52 fake out right here. So you have most likely heard this before, I'm sure, right? Like I said, some of the most common sense things we hear, but we, we kind of like uh, put them to the wayside because they're so common sense. But most likely you are multitasking, right? It's now the norm, so it can feel countercultural to even challenge it. But not only does multitasking, like, you know, I would say shit on performance, it also dis disrupts the creative collaboration where greatest, the greatest ideas are born. And I think that's probably one of the bigger faults for it. So employees who multitask are more likely to be in their own world, feeling like they're working at breakneck speed with no time for a pause. And they're less likely to have these impromptu ideas through conversation. I can definitely say that like the best ideas I've ever had have been through conversation and not just by myself, like crushing stuff, you know, a thousand miles an hour trying to get everything done. So, so that's stopping innovation in its tracks. And, you know, think of unitasking as the next big thing. And, and uh, what is, what is unitasking? We'll, we'll move into that in a second because First one to go, like, look, humans are resilient, okay? With work, the damage done to attention can be reversed. That's what was the coolest thing, that a lot of stuff can be reversed. Choosing to give all your focus to one activity at a time is known as unitasking. That's, that's all it is, right? Remember Helen Keller book, The One Thing? Fantastic. Or Essentialism, another great book to, to read on this. And, and unitasking is a great way to do it, but don't expect it to be easy. Like, so changing your behavior around multitasking takes a lot of determination and, and I would say even bravery because again, it can feel countercultural in a climate that's faster and faster and faster. So, you know, remind yourself that all multitasking really does give you a false sense of productivity because it feels good, but it's not getting, it's not, it's really not getting shit done, right? So every time you switch attention like real fast from one thing to the next, you get a little bit of like that neurochemical high, like, ooh wee, like I'm, I'm doing stuff, I'm busy, right? But where, can where, where tech is concerned, feelings are deceiving, right? Everywhere that, that humans interact with devices, there's a wide gap between what we think those devices are doing for us and how they're actually affecting us. So you probably still feel like multitasking is making you faster, more productive, and more efficient, and all that shit. Like, you probably feel it, 
Even though, even right now, what I'm telling you, that studies show that it's the opposite, right? So just acknowledge your vulnerability and, and, and design, you know, design around it. Leave your phone out of the room during meetings. Uh, you know, check your email on a schedule and let your colleagues know when they can expect you to respond rather than being at the beck and call for every new message alert. I actually created this whole, I would say, uh, uh, for our coaches and some of our, uh, I would say, business coaching clients, I shared this with them, which is a coaching handbook of how to best operate. And this is everything from, you know, designing programs to answering nutrition questions, batching work, um, you know, so that it saves them hours and hours a week. And not only that, it saves them a lot of energy. So it, find your own pace, one that allows for creativity, comprehension, and conversation, and then stick to it like a mofo, right? Um, and ju- just think of it like, man, we're, we're, we always go through these phases. So we're going to come back to like, you know, where think of unitasking as the next big, big thing, right? And every domain of life will increase your per- performance and decrease stress, period. Um, and so when are you most guilty of multitasking? Why? What, why? what do you think that it helps you accomplish? I certainly know what it is for me. It's like, you know, oh man, I got so much on my plate. I got to keep chipping away at a bunch of different things. And it is that feeling of like, if I'm working on multiple things, I'm getting multiple things done. But the reality is I'm actually getting them done slower than, than working on one thing at a time. So imagine, you know, imagine switching from like that multitasking to unitasking. What do you, what do you fear is going to happen? And then what do you hope that might happen? Write those out. Okay. So, and then I gotta, I gotta, I, this is, this is gonna be, I think for work, this is gonna be one that's gonna be powerful for you, but pick a situation where you typically multitask for one whole week. And then every time you encounter a situation, focus only on the immediate task at hand. So just for one week, for one week, like really practice this and go from multitasking to unitasking, right? And meetings are a great choice for this exercise. Every time you have a meeting this week, leave your phone in your office. If meetings aren't your multitasking Achilles heel, what is it, right? And then try to do it there. Um, like I said, if you're not taking these things into account, then you're not going to be changing them. All right. Now, now we're moving to the last two. Big idea number nine, teaching conversation. So we're at a turning point, okay? If you value conversation, which I certainly hope you do, and as listening through this, I hope that um, you know, it's brought awareness to this. Become a mentor and share the art of conversation with the younger generation. Teach them how to use conversation to connect, to grow, and to learn empathy. Teach them how to embrace the awkwardness and, and enjoy it. The young know that they're missing something. Like, they know they're missing something, right? And, but, it, put it this way, they know they're missing something, but they don't know what it is. So be the person who gets them to try this stuff. Right? It's, it's going to be big for you. That's part of the reason why we're opening this whole scholarship program up. I mean, there's, there's many reasons behind it, but this is definitely one of them. So know that for, for the kids, their brains have never engaged this way, are not wired to do so. They're not because, once again, we said they're growing up in a different generation. So the good news is the human brain is so malleable. It requires itself to perform what we ask it. So kids are often the first to complain that they're being shortchanged when those around them spend too much time checking their phones. Don't dismiss these complaints. This is very important. Like even like I said, if you're a mentor, don't dismiss that stuff because they make a valid observation, even if they're also engrossed in their own screens. But it's got to start with you. So the job of the role model falls to the older generation, not only because we're supposed to have more impulse control, but because our brains are wired at a time when technology was not constantly tampering with our attention that the way that it is now. So how do you teach conversation? Well, first, you have to address your own habits. Like I always say, like, hey, self-management and self-awareness, right? You don't have to be a perfect mentor. You simply need to be humble and lead by example. Just as parents model behavior, you know, 
for instance, texting during dinner. They then criticize in their children, you know, managers often model behavior to criticize in their employees. Think about that, okay? Just as parents model their behavior, then they criticize their children. Managers often do the same thing and criticize their employees. Um, and, you know, I, I have to always reel myself back in and say, hey, am I asking something of my team that I actually don't do myself because that's bullshit, right? And I have to check myself first. Um, so, first of all, how to begin the process. First, look up. If your eyes are on your phone, you're not really with the person in front of you, period, okay? Practice solitude yourself and be an attentive other for children. Keep your self-reflection time away from the screens. Boredom is a valuable tool. I have to keep reminding myself that. Resist the urge to schedule every moment and like everything's got to be packed, okay? Fight face-to-face because dealing with difficult emotions is an important developmental skill. So when it comes to kids, like, hey, have fights face-to-face. Have tough conversations face-to-face. Allow technology to augment rather than replace in-person interaction. And remember that this is a slippery slope, right? Set clear expectations about when you expect colleagues to be on a call via technology. And emphasize that showing up to share ideas in meetings, office hours, connected, together, um, you know, dinners, lunches, whatever, is as important as the ideas shared within the meetings. So... They respect the courage it takes to begin a conversation when you have grown up in a culture where conversation is practiced only as a last resort. So I, I would say that that's an important thing is to shine a light. We talk about shining a light on positives. Shine a light when, uh, you know, uh, uh, I would say somebody younger does that. And once again, because they're, they're not learned, they're not taught this. Um, and I guess my quote here would be, when people resist moving away from their screens and toward conversation, they're often afraid of giving up this, the, the feeling of mastery. A question for you here is identify someone whose habits around conversation you admire. What do they do? What do they not do? How's their approach different from yours? Uh, you know, I, I, those like some of the people in my life that I, I really uh, have been great with that are, are John Berardi, Nate Green, um, Jason Ferrugia where it's like finding the things that they do that allow them to connect better and have uh, better conversations. So ask yourself, what are some habits around people that, ha- that have conversations that you admire? And then identify someone in your life to whom, you'd be, uh, whom you could be a conversational mentor and who will you engage with for that? Like who's the person that you're gonna engage with? Write that down. Um, and well, then you gotta, guess what? Like you got to spend some time with those people, both the people that, you know, mentoring you and the people that you're going to mentor and block out that time. Like legitimately don't, don't go like, okay, I am think I'm going to do that. No, actually do it. Um, and so the last big idea, a virtuous circle, um, you know, is their fourth chair. And like I said, I, I want you to, to, to look into some of this. Cause like I said, like these are things that I'm learning, I'm studying, I'm taking notes on, um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do the, 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 all the research on, but like, these are the studies that I want to share with you. Um, and Turkle adds the fourth chair to this virtual circle um, that represents the philip- philosophical space. And in uh, Henry Thoreau, he found that in nature. And the burning question for him was, what do we become when we talk to machines? So he said that we exist in this robotic moment defined not by the merits of the machines we have built, uh, but our eagerness for their company. So machines have gotten more sophisticated and we've begun to hope that they'll someday interact with us as empathetic, caring companions. 
So we already have machines that like engage us in conversation with virtual, virtual assistants like, like Siri who can joke and respond to your attitude. Uh, sometimes it's coy, sometimes it's funny. I actually don't use Siri almost at all. Um, I, I tell Alexa to set my alarm in the morning, but that's mostly because I want to feel like Tony Stark. <laughs> that's pretty much why I got it. But, um, you know, I'll say that the, they've spent years studying artificial intelligence and its effects on us. And, you know, there's a caution that machines get better at mimicking human sympathy we become trickled into letting them replace other humans. And that's dangerous, right? Their efficiency and ease are seductive and humans seem ungainly and difficult by comparison. But robotic conversation reduces empathy to superficial performance because machines can't experience emotions, right? So the danger is that the performance is good enough, it may start to replace the real thing. And you can kind of see where that's going, right? So, you know, I want to bring this to attention because at the end, like, why do I, I believe kind of like... and I'm, I'm obviously in fitness and, and you have the apps and, you know, people talking about virtual reality. I don't think anything ever replaces that skin to skin, right? Um, I, re- I really don't. And, you know, there are people that were starting to have more relationships with like things like Alexa and Siri, um, you know, sociable machines, but don't really connect with, you know, humans as much. And it's like, ask yourself, hey, what do you use the apps to accomplish, there's some people that are like they, they live through the apps. I mean, they believe apps more than they believe the humans, right? And and think about also how the people around you, uh, I would say, interact with those devices, right? It's this is important because once again, like I I believe these are mediums and and communication channels that allow us to share a lot and they they can be great. But the thing that I'm trying to bring up is I would say how do we come better at conversation because when we're not good at conversation, like our life becomes worse, period. You know, our relationships, our businesses, uh, our fulfillment, our focus, our clarity, like all those things suffer. And like I said, while like I could literally be saying, you know, talking to myself through this podcast, um, I am like, I'm, I'm learning a lot of things myself and making myself aware of a lot of things. I want to share them with you because one of my favorite things in the world to do is is interact with human beings like face to face and if anybody's ever been a vigor you know that that's like that is my deal and that's my spiel and i love it and and i think we need as a, a society to be to do more of that and that would be more successful more connected and our lives would be better and we'd be able to make our other people's lives better so with that said i know this was a little bit of a longer one but hey take you know like there was 10 big ideas um there was at least eight or nine different, you know, exercises and questions. Take one or two, just do something. Like I said, all of these things are there to help you become better. Um, you know, and, and it is, like I always said that the Vigor Life podcast is an extension of the things that I do every day, you know, from study to coaching. Um, and like I said, I have obviously the gym where we interact with our, our clients and I interact with my team, um, coach, mentor, guide the team as they do me. Uh, same thing with clients. And then I have, you know, the the business consulting businesses and mentorships uh, where also, like, I'm always doing these things. So I, this is an extension of everything that I do in real life, face-to-face, um, and and just sharing it to, to help you maybe just extract one nugget and then apply it into your life and it'll make your life, your business, your relationships better um, and help you make more money too because, hey, everybody, everybody wants to do that through doing something fulfilling. With that said... Guys, love and appreciate you taking your time listening to this. 
And as always, please go leave a review on iTunes. Um, it's, it's growing. It's helping us spread the message. It's helping us spread the word. And a lot of people are, are reaching back and saying that it, it's helping their coaching practice. It's helping their life. It's helping um, them train their clients better um, and, and even like for personal development. So please go do that. I appreciate you. And I'll see you in the next episode of Vigor Life Podcast. Peace.